Chapter Sixteen of Great Men and Famous Women, Volume Four, edited by Charles F. Horn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Alexander von Humboldt, seventeen sixty nine to eighteen fifty nine, by Louis Agassiz. Alexander von Humboldt, as he always called himself, though he was christened with the names of Frederick Heinrich Alexander, was born in seventeen sixty nine on december fourteenth in that memorable year which gave to the world those philosophers warriors and statesmen who have changed the face of science and the condition of affairs in our century it was in that year that cuvier also and schiller were born and among the warriors and statesmen napoleon the duke of wellington and canning our children of seventeen sixty nine and it is certainly a year of which we can say that its children have revolutionized the world. Of the early life of Humboldt, I know nothing, and I find no records except that in his tenth year he lost his father, who had been a major in the army during the Seven Years' War, and afterward a chamberlain to the King of Prussia. But his mother took excellent care of him and watched over his early education. The influence she had upon his life is evident from the fact that notwithstanding his yearning for the sight of foreign lands, he did not begin to make active preparations for his travels during her lifetime. In the winter of 1787 through 1788, he was sent to the University of Frankfurt on the Oder to study finances. He was to be a statesman. He was to enter high offices, for which there was a fair chance, owing to his noble birth and the patronage he could expect at court. He remained, however, but a short time there. Not finding these studies to his taste, after a semester's residence in the university, we find him again at Berlin, and there in intimate friendship with Wildenau, then professor of botany, and who at the time possessed the greatest herbarium in existence. Botany was the first branch of natural science to which Humboldt paid especial attention. The next year he went to Göttingen, being then a youth of twenty years, and here he studied natural history with Blumenbach, and thus had an opportunity of seeing the progress zoology was making in anticipation of the great movement by which Cuvier placed zoology on a new foundation. For it is an unquestionable fact that in the first presenting a classification of the animal kingdom based upon a knowledge of its structure, Blumenbach in a measure, anticipated Cuvier, though it is only by an exaggeration of what Blumenbach did that an unfair writer of later times has attempted to deprive Cuvier of the glory of having accomplished this object upon the broadest possible basis. From Göttingen he visited the Rhine, for the purpose of studying geology, and in particular the basaltic formations of the Seven Mountains. At Mayence he became acquainted with George Foster, who proposed to accompany him on a journey to England. You may imagine what impression the conversation of that active, impetuous, and powerful man had upon the youthful Humboldt. They went to Belgium and Holland, and thence to England, where Foster introduced him to Sir Joseph Banks. Thus the companions of Captain Cook in his first and second voyages round the world, who were already venerable in years and eminent promoters of physical science, not yet established in the popular favor, were the early guides of Humboldt in his aspirations for scientific distinction. 
yet humboldt had a worldly career to accomplish he was to be a statesman and this required that he should go to the academy of commerce at hamburg he remained there five months but could endure it no longer and he begged so hard that his mother allowed him to go to freiburg and study geology with werner with a view of obtaining a situation in the administration of mines see what combinations of circumstances prepare him for his great career as no other young man ever was prepared at freiburg he received the private instruction of werner the founder of modern geology and he had as his fellow student no less a man than leopold von buch then a youth to whom at a later period humboldt himself dedicated one of his works inscribing it to the greatest geologist as he was till the day of his recent death from freiburg he made frequent excursions into the hartz and fichtelgeberg and surrounding regions and these excursions ended in the publication of a small work upon the subterranean flora of freiburg flora subterranea firigensis in which he described especially those cryptogamous plants or singular low and imperfect formations which occur in the deep mines but here ends his period of pupilage in seventeen ninety two he was appointed an officer of the mines oberbergmeister he went to beirut as director of the operations in those mines belonging to the frankish provinces of prussia yet he was always wandering in every direction seeking for information and new subjects of study he visited vienna and there heard of the discoveries of galvani with which he made himself familiar went to italy and switzerland where he became acquainted with the then celebrated professors Durin and pictet and with the illustrious scarpa he also went to jena formed an intimate acquaintance with schiller and goethe and also with lauder with whom he studied anatomy from that time he began to make investigations of his own and these investigations were in a line which he has never approached since being experiments in physiology he turned his attention to the newly discovered power by which he tested the activity of organic substances and it is plain from his manner of treating the subject that he leaned to the idea that the chemical process going on in the living body of animals furnished a clue to the phenomena of life if it was not life itself this may be inferred from the title of the book published in seventeen ninety seven Ubedigereitze muskel and nervenfasser mit vermutungen über den chemischen process des lebens in theorin und Pflanzen. in these explanations of the phenomena we have the sources of the first impulses in a direction which has been so beneficial in advancing the true explanation of the secondary phenomena of life but which at the same time in its exaggeration as it prevails now has denigrated into the materialism of modern investigators in that period of all-embracing activity he began to study astronomy his attention was called to it by baron von zach who was a prominent astronomer of the time and who at that time was actively engaged upon astronomical investigations in germany he showed humboldt to what extent astronomy would be useful to him in his travels in determining the position of places the altitude of mountains etc so prepared 
Humboldt now broods over his plans of foreign travel. He has published his work on the muscular and nervous fiber at the age of twenty-eight. He has lost his mother, and his mind is now inflamed with an ungovernable passion for the sight of foreign and especially tropical lands. He goes to Paris to make preparation by securing the best astronomical, meteorological, and surveying instruments. Evidently, he does not care where he shall go, for on a proposition of Lord Bristol to visit Egypt, he agrees to it. The war prevents the execution of this plan, and he enters into negotiations to accompany the projected expedition of Captain Bodin in Australia. But when Bonaparte, bent on the conquest of Egypt, started with a scientific expedition, Humboldt wishes to join it. He expects to be one of the scientific party, and to reach Egypt by way of Barbary. But all these plans failing, he goes to Spain, with a view of exploring that country, and finding, perhaps, some means of joining the French expedition in Egypt from Spain. While in Madrid, he is so well received at the court, a young nobleman so well instructed has access everywhere, and he receives such encouragement from persons in high positions, that he turns his thoughts to an exploration of the Spanish provinces of America. He receives permission not only to visit them, but instructions are given to the officers of the colonies to receive him everywhere and give him all facilities, to permit him to transport his own instruments, to make astronomical and other observations, and to collect whatever he chooses, and all that only in consequence of the good impression he has made when he appeared there with no other recommendation than that of a friend, who happened to be at that time Danish minister to the court of Madrid. But with these facilities offered to him, he sails in June 1799 from Corona, whence he reaches Tenerife, makes short explorations of that island, ascends the peak, and sailing straight away to America, where he lands in Cumana in the month of July and employs the first year and a half in the exploration of the basin of the Orinoco and its connection with the Amazon. This was a journey of itself, and completed a work of scientific importance, establishing the fact that the two rivers were connected by an uninterrupted course of water. He established for the first time the fact that there was an extensive low plain, connected by water, which circled the high tableland of Guiana. It was an important discovery in physical geography, because it changed the ideas about water courses and about the distributions of mountains and plains in a manner which has had the most extensive influence upon the progress of physical geography. It may well be said that after this exploration of the Orinoco, physical geography begins to appear as a part of science. From Kamana he makes a short excursion to Havana, and hearing there of the probable arrival of Bordin on the west coast of America, starts with the intention of crossing at Panama. He arrives at Carthagena, but was prevented by the advance of the season from crossing the Isthmus, and changed his determination from want of precise information respecting Bordin's locality. He determines to ascend the Magdalena River, and visit Santa Fe de Bogota, where, for several months, he explores the construction of the mountains, and collects plants and animals, and in connection with his friend Bonpland, who accompanied him from Paris, 
he makes those immense botanical collections which were afterward published by bonpland himself and by kunth after bonpland had determined on an exposition to south america in the beginning of eighteen o two he reaches quinto where during four months he turns his attention to everything worth investigating ascends the shiborazzo to a height which no human foot had reached anywhere and having completed this survey and repeatedly crossed the andes he descends the southern slope of the continent to the shore of the pacific at truxillo and following the arid coast of peru he visits finally lima i will pass lightly over all the details of his journey for they are only incidents in that laborious exploration of the country which is best appreciated by a consideration of the works which were published in consequence of that immense accumulation of materials gathered during those explorations from lima or rather from calao he sails in eighteen o two for guayaco and acapulco and reaches mexico in eighteen o three where he makes as extensive explorations as he had made in venezuela and the andes and after a stay of about a year and having put all his collections and manuscripts in order revisits cuba for a short time comes to the united states makes a hurried excursion to philadelphia and washington where he is welcomed by jefferson and finally returns with his faithful companion bonpland to france accompanied by a young spanish nobleman don carlo de montufar who had shared his travels since his visits to quito at thirty-six years of age humboldt is again in europe with collections made in foreign lands such as had never been brought together before but here we meet with a singular circumstance the german nobleman the friend of the prussian and spanish courts chooses paris for his residence and remains there twenty-two years to work out the result of his scientific labor for since his return with the exception of short journeys to italy england and germany sometimes accompanying the king of prussia sometimes alone or accompanied by scientific friends he is entirely occupied in scientific labors and studies so passes the time to the year eighteen twenty seven and no doubt he was induced to make this choice of a residence by the extraordinary concourse of distinguished men in all branches of science with whom he thought he could best discuss the results of his own observations i shall presently have something to say about the works he completed during that most laborious period of his life i will only add now that in eighteen twenty seven he returned to berlin permanently having been urged of late by the king of prussia again and again to return to his native land and there he delivered a series of lectures preparatory to the publication of cosmos for in substance even in form and arrangement these lectures of which the papers of the day give short accounts are a sort of prologue to the cosmos and a preparation for its publication in eighteen twenty nine when he was sixty years of age he undertakes another great journey he accepts the invitation of the emperor nicholas to visit the ural mountains with a view of examining the gold mines and localities where platina and diamonds had been found to determine their geological relation he accomplished the journey with ehrenberg and gustavus rose who published the result of their mineralogical and geological survey in a work of which 
he is the sole author while humboldt published under the title of asiatic fragments of geology and climatology his observations of the physical and geographical features made during that journey but he had hardly returned to berlin when in consequence of the revolution of eighteen thirty he was sent by the king of prussia as extraordinary ambassador to france to honor the elevation of louis philippe to the throne humboldt had long been a personal friend of the orleans family he was selected ambassador on that occasion on account of these personal relations from eighteen thirty to eighteen forty eight he lived alternately in berlin and in paris spending nearly half the time in paris and half the time in berlin with occasional visits to england and denmark publishing the results of his investigations in asia making original investigations upon various things and especially pressing the establishment of observatories and connected magnetic observations all over the globe for which he obtained the cooperation of the russian government and that of the government of england and at that time those observations in australia and in the russian empire to the borders of china were established which have led to such important results in our knowledge of terrestrial magnetism since eighteen forty eight he has lived uninterruptedly in berlin where he published on the anniversary of his eightieth year a new edition of those charming first flowers of his pen his views of nature the first edition of which was published in germany in eighteen o eight this third edition appeared with a series of new and remodeled annotations and explanations in that book in which he first presented his views of nature in which he drew those vivid pictures of the physiognomy of plants and of their geographical distribution is now revived and brought to the present state of science the views of nature is a work which humboldt has always cherished and to which in his cosmos he refers more frequently than to any other work it is no doubt because there he has expressed his deepest thoughts his most impressive views even foreshadowed those intimate convictions which he never expressed but which he desired to record in such a manner that those that can read between the lines might find them there and certainly there we find them his aspiration has been to present to the world a picture of the physical world from which he would exclude everything that relates to the turmoil of human society and to the ambitions of individual men a life so full so rich is worth explaining in every respect and it is really instructive to see with what devotion he pursues his work as long as he is a student he is really a student and learns faithfully and learns everything he can reach and he continues so for twenty-three years he is not one of those who is impatient to show that he has something in him and with premature impatience utters his ideas so that they become insuperable barriers to his independent progress in later life slowly and confident of his sure progress he advances and while he learns he studies also independently of those who teach him he makes his experiments and to make them with more independence he seeks for an official position during five years he is a business man in a station which gives him leisure he is superintendent of the mines but the superintendent of the mines who can 
do much as he pleases. And while he is thus officially engaged, journeying and superintending, he prepares himself for his independent researches. And yet it will be seen he is thirty years of age before he enters upon his American travels. Those travels, which will be said to have been the greatest undertaking ever carried to a successful issue, if judged by the results, they have as completely changed the basis of physical science as the revolution which took place in France about the same time has changed the social condition of that land. Having returned to these travels to Paris, there begins in his life a period of concentrated critical studies. He works his materials, and he works them with an ardor and devotion which are untiring. And he is not anxious to appear to have done it all himself. Altman is called to his aid to revise his astronomical observations and his barometrical measurements by which he has determined the geographical position of 700 different points and the altitude of more than 450 of them. The large collection of plants which Bonpland had begun to illustrate, but of which his desire of seeing the tropics again, has prevented the completion he entrusts to Kunth. He has also brought home animals of different classes, and distributes them among the most eminent zoologists of the day. To Corvier he entrusts the investigation of that remarkable Batrachian, the Aleotel, the mode of development of which is still unknown, but which remains in its adult state in a condition similar to that of the tadpole of the frog during the earlier period of its life. The trail describes the insects, and Valenciennes the shells and the fishes. But yet, to show that he might have done the work himself, he publishes a memoir on the anatomical structure of the organs of breathing, and the animals he has preserved, and another upon the tropical monkeys of America, and another upon the electrical properties of the electric eel. But he was chiefly occupied with investigations in physical geography and climatology. The first work upon that subject is a dissertation of the geographical distribution of plants, published in 1817. Many botanist travelers have observed that in different parts of the world there are plants not found in others, and that there is a certain arrangement in that distribution. But Humboldt was the first to see that this distribution is connected with the temperature of the air, as well as with the altitudes of the surface on which they grow and he systematized his researches into a general exposition of the laws by which the distribution of plants is regulated. Connected with this subject, he made those extensive investigations into the mean temperature of a large number of places on the surface of the globe, which led to the drawing of those isothermal lines so important in their influence in shaping physical geography and giving accuracy to the mode of representing natural phenomena. Before Humboldt we had no graphic representation of complex natural phenomena, which made them easily comprehensible, even to minds of moderate cultivation. He has done that in a way which has circulated information more extensively, and brought it to the apprehension more clearly than it could have been done by any other means. It is not too much to say that this mode of representing natural phenomena has made it possible to introduce in our most elementary works the broad generalizations derived from the investigations of Humboldt in South America, 
and that every child in our schools has his mind fed from the labors of Humboldt's brain, wherever geography is no longer taught in the old routine. Humboldt was born near the court. He was brought up in connection with courtiers and men in high positions of life. He was no doubt imbued with the prejudices of his caste. He was a nobleman of high descent. And yet the friend of kings was the bosom friend of Arago. And he was the man who could, after his return from America, refuse the highest position at the court of Berlin, that of the Secretaryship of Public Instruction, preferring to live in a modest way in Paris, in the society of all those illustrious men who then made Paris the center of intellectual culture. It was there he became one of that society d'Arcelles composed of all the great men of the day, to which the paper on isothermal lines was presented, and by which it was printed, as all papers presented to it were, for private distribution. But from his intimate relations, especially to the court of Prussia, some insinuations have been made as to the character of Humboldt. They are as unjust as they are severe in expression. He was never a flatterer of those in power. He has shown it by taking a prominent position in 1848 at the head of those who accompanied the victims of the revolution of that year to their last place of rest. But while he expressed his independence in such a manner, he had the kindliest feeling for all parties. He could not offend, even by an expression, those with whom he had been associated in early life. And I have no doubt that it is to that kindliness of feeling we must describe his somewhat indiscriminate patronage of aspirants in science, as well as men who were truly devoted to its highest aims. He may said to have been, especially in his later years, the friend of every cultivated man, wishing to lose no opportunity to do all the good of which he was capable, for he had a degree of benevolence and generosity which was unbounded. I can well say that there is not a man engaged in scientific investigations in Europe who has not received at his hands marked tokens of his favor, and who is not under deep obligations to him. May I be permitted to tell a circumstance which is personal to me in that respect? and which shows what he was capable of doing, while he was forbidden an opportunity of telling it. I was only twenty-four years of age when in Paris, whither I had gone with means given me by a friend, but was at last about to resign my studies from want of ability to meet my expenses. Professor Mitscherlich was then on a visit to Paris, and I had seen him in the morning, when he asked me what was the cause of my depressed feelings, and I told him that I had to go for I had nothing left. The next morning I was seated at breakfast in front of the yard of the hotel where I lived. I saw the servant of Humboldt approach. He handed me a note, saying there was no answer and disappeared. I opened the note, and I see it now before me as distinctly as if I had held the paper in my hand. It said, My friend, I hear that you intend leaving Paris in consequence of some embarrassments. That shall not be. I wish you to remain here as long as the object for which you came is not accomplished. I enclose you a check of fifty pounds. It is a loan which you may repay when you can. Some years afterward, when I could have repaid him, I wrote, asking for the privilege of remaining forever in his debt, knowing that this request would be more consonant to his feelings than the recovery of the money, and I am now in his debt. What he has done for me, 
I know he has done for many others, in silence and unknown to the world. I wish I could go on to state something of his character, his conversational powers, etc., but I feel that I am not in a condition to speak of them. I would only say that his habits were very peculiar. He was an early riser, and yet he was seen at late hours in the salons in different parts of Paris. From the year 1830 to 1848, while in Paris, he had been charged by the King of Prussia to send reports upon the condition of things there. He had before prepared for the King of Prussia a report on the political condition of the Spanish colonies in America, which no doubt had its influence afterward upon the recognition of the independence of those colonies. The importance of such reports to the government of Prussia may be inferred from a perusal of his political and statistical essays upon Mexico and Cuba. It is a circumstance worth noticing that above all great powers, Prussia has more distinguished scientific and literary men among her diplomatists than any other state. And so was Humboldt actually a diplomatist in Paris, though he was placed in that position, not from choice, but in consequence of the benevolence of the king who wanted to give him an opportunity of being in Paris as often and as long as he chose. But from that time there were two men in him, the diplomatist, living in the Hôtel de Princes, and the naturalist, who roamed in the Rue de la Harpe, in a modest apartment in the second story, where his scientific friends had access to him every day before seven. After that he was frequently seen working in the library of the Institute, until the time when the Grand Seigneur made his appearance at the court or in the salons of Paris. The influence he has exerted upon the progress of science is incalculable. I need only allude to the fact that the cosmos, bringing every branch of natural science down to the comprehension of every class of students, has been translated into the language of every civilized nation of the world, and gone through several editions. With him, and a great period in the history of science, a period to which Cuvier, Laplace, Arago, Gay-Lussac, and de Condel, and Robert Brown belonged. End of chapter 16